What I like doing when we start these out is just to go around the room, kind of this, we're all in this together. We're part of this club. We didn't want to join um, the Wandering Loved Ones Club. So let's um, just say your name and what is your relationship to your wanderer? And if you don't have a wanderer, some people come as a preemptive strike to kind of be prepared and forearmed and forewarned and all of that, that praise God. Um, and, but I think some of the principles that we're going to talk about they apply to any of these clubs that we don't want to join when there's a hardship in our lives. And um, we'll talk a little bit more about that. And sometimes with those adult children, especially, the, it's, we don't know where they are because these are hard conversations to have. Um, so we're going to talk about that in a little bit, too. Um, I wanted to let you know this is my tribe, my people. Um, so, the, and some of you, if you've been around Mount Hermon for a while, sorry, this might be in the way, um, you might recognize some of these people because they've been in the, on summer staff. Um, this guy over here on the right, this is our son, Eric. He is, um, was ranger in childcare, and he was also guarding your lives down at the pool. Um, so he worked here three summers. He's currently living in Santa Barbara. Um, working as an accountant. He's a smarty pants with numbers. Um, and then myself, this is our daughter, Masha. You'll see her in the dining room. Um, she is really delighted with her uh, serving skills. So please comment on those. If she happens to pour you coffee, say thank you. Um, and she's just loved being in this grace-filled environment for a full-time job for her this summer. Um, this is my husband, Brian, in the back. He is the engine of our family making us go. Um, he's been in and out this summer, hanging out with me some, trying to work remotely from our place here, um, but this week he's down in Southern California. This is our family star right now. That's our first grandchild, Haley. Uh, she just celebrated her first birthday. And she is being held by our oldest son, David, um, her dad. When he was on summer staff, he worked three summers in day camp. He was Spike, if anybody had, their kids had Spike. And then the beautiful girl next to him is his wife, Anne. And they met working here at day camp. Um, her name was Winnie like the horse makes that noise. Um, she's a horse gal. And the two of them live in Santa Barbara as well. He works for a software company and she is staying home with Haley now. And this handsome guy in the end here, this is our Kevin. He is the one that is prompting this seminar. He is our wanderer. Um, he also lives in Santa Barbara. He works for the same software company that David does. He worked at Redwood Camp. He was um, bandit. Um, when he was there, and that fits. <laughs> Not that he was a bandit, but just sort of that edgy outlaw kind of guy. Um, so, and you'll notice the Santa Barbara theme. All three of our boys went to Westmont College, which is where Laura and I went to school. We were classmates, and I met my husband at Westmont College. So we were very, very delighted when our three boys decided to go there. Um, so that is my tribe. You all have the stories of your tribe. And one of the reasons in, you're here in this room is because there's somebody that you deeply care about, that you love, who has wandered from the Lord, has declared that they no longer want to be walking with Jesus, or you're just not sure where they are. So um, it can be a pain-filled and prayerful journey. And so I want to start us out by praying together. Heavenly Father, um, we're here in this beautiful place, this place of restoration, renewal, transformation. And God, as we um, talk about some of the things, this journey that we are on with our wanderers, I pray, God, that you would um, use these words from your word that would be encouraging to us, that would um, put us in a better place to come alongside our wanderers, 
God, may this time that we spend here be for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start out with a few statements to set uh, the stage a little bit. The first thing I want to make clear is that um, I, have my, I have Kevin's permission to tell this story, um, to share about this. I actually, this seminar has been several years in the making because God was taking me on a journey and I've learned a lot and I was talking with Kevin um, about four or five months ago and I said, Kevin, you know, since your senior year of college, when you decided that you were no longer going to be um, identifying as a Christian, I said, God has been teaching me a lot. And I said, and you know what happens when God teaches me things? And he starts laughing. And I said, I have to talk about it. He goes, Mom, I know where you're going with this. You absolutely have my permission to share anything you want to share. So that, was, that is a gift. Um, I think it's really important for us to think about how we're talking about our loved ones who are wandering, it can be tricky because you're sharing your story with people. And so your loved one's story is going to naturally intersect and get entangled and it can become complicated. It's not insurmountable, but I think it's really important to pay attention to how we speak about our loved ones who've wandered from the Lord. Um, I don't ever diminish the heartache and the sadness that I feel over this, but I never want to disparage my son. And I want to honor our relationship really well. Um, also, the second thing I mentioned, this is not a fix-it or a how-to. Um, if it were that easy, we would, really wouldn't need a seminar. Somebody would have written a book. We all would have read it, and we would be done. Um, our job is not to fix our wanderer. Our job is to be faithful to Jesus. Um, and third, really the main subject of this seminar is not your wanderer. The main subject of this seminar is Jesus, how he transforms us through this life journey with our wanderers, how he desires to draw us closer to him through these circumstances. So here's where we're going to go this morning. Um, I have these little, I don't know how many of you got these flyers. Did some of you, if you want these, can we pass them around? Sorry about that. I didn't hand those out. So maybe pass them. So we're going to look at first, we're going to talk a little bit about what's our response when we have somebody who we realize is wandering from the Lord. Then where would we, we we're going to talk about some of the typical responses we have, acknowledging that we probably don't want to stay there. We need to figure out how we're going to get over to what I call our landing pad, what, and then what happens in that middle space to get us from our response to our desired landing pad. How does God get us over there? Um, but before we talk about what our responses are, I want to acknowledge there's a lot of different types of wandering from the Lord um, because this wide spectrum of wandering creates different responses from us. How our loved one is, is wandering creates, wells within us different responses. Um, so in no particular order, I'd say sometimes we will have a wanderer who is flat out angry and rebellious, and it's a rebellion that is rejecting God. It might be rejecting you and your role in their life. You're witnessing destructive choices, um, some dangerous behaviors. It's, this is the pain that is layered upon pain and layered upon some more pain. It's very difficult. Um, sometimes we're dealing with somebody who, it, I call it the slow drift, and it looks a little bit like apathy towards faith. Um, maybe your loved one is described as a very pleasant person, nice to be around, but for a myriad of different reasons, they have left Jesus behind. Um, they've ceased to live their lives in surrender to Jesus. 
They don't appear to care about God. And what can happen is it will kind of bug them that you care that they don't care. And so there can be a tension that can be created around that. Then there's some wanderers that have actually made an examined and deliberate decision that they no longer believe the scriptures are true, they do not believe in Jesus, and they've embraced a completely different faith construct. And they can be really nice and pleasant and considered successful people, but they've rejected the scriptures, they've rejected Jesus, and they do not claim him as savior. So these are some sort of the what I would call some of the descriptors that I have seen in what I call my conversational research with people. I've talked to so many people that have had wanderers in their lives. Um, I would say for Kevin, he has had seasons in his life of very deep connection to Jesus, um, desiring to grow in his faith in Christ. He's gone through periods of willful rebellion. Um, at one point, he was uh, talking about the summer before his senior year of high school, and he said, yeah, I was on a real hot streak of poor life choices, and it was true, and we were tearing our hair out. We were white-knuckling it in the parenting department. Um, I asked him, I said, Kevin, for this seminar, I said, where would you say you are right now? Because I sent him, I've sent him big excerpts from this seminar. He'd say, and he read over the three that I described. He says, yeah, I, I think I'm probably in the second category. Just don't really care that much. He says, I don't think that you could say, I don't think I need God. He goes, I think that's kind of arrogant for somebody to acknowledge there is a God, and then they say they actually don't need him. But then he says he doesn't really care about God. So there's a lot of mixed messages, which tells me he's very confused. And that's okay. Um, but when you think about your response to your loved one who has wandered far from their home in Christ, what are some of the words that describe how you feel when you're encountering that? Just throw them out. Anxious. Mm-hmm. Sad. So sad. Hurt, mm-hmm, scared, very disappointed, useless, helpless, mm-hmm, confused, what in the world, yeah. Okay, I haven't heard the one that is also very common. Yes, that's the one. We, we Christians don't like to talk about anger, but it's so real, and we can get so mad, yeah. Very, very real responses. Um, what, I did, what I've done is I've put these responses into categories. And now you're saying, Liz, how in the world did you know what we were going to say and plan your whole seminar around it? And again, it's that conversational research. Talk to a lot of people that have wanderers in their lives. Um, also, there's personal experience. This is, these are all things that I have experienced. So what is the counter to these responses, because I'm going to assume you're here because you don't want to stay anxious and angry and sad. You want, there has to be a better way. There has to be a different way. So you're here because you want to figure out where would we go and what happens in that middle space. What is that transformation? What happens in those blue bubbles? Your presence here tells me that you desire transformation. You don't want to stay anxious. You don't want to stay angry. You don't want to stay sad over this. Um, I also, in talking with my husband about this, I said, you know, where do you find yourself landing with these things? And um, he says, well, he goes, I've experienced all those things. He says, I don't think I live there every day. 
And again, because this is a journey we've been on for probably four or five years now with Kevin. So if we lived there every day, that would be exhausting. So a lot of times what we do is we sort of shift into neutral and just kind of, let's just be Switzerland. Let's not rock this boat. Let's, let's keep everything just kind of, and, and sometimes that's actually, that's a safe place to be. But I have to believe that there's more that God has for us than just being in neutral. So what we're going to do is go through these responses one by one. So first we're going to talk about anxiety. Um, this, is, this is my favorite place to live, anxiety. Um, so I'm very familiar with this scripture verse. This is probably the most common verse of scripture that you'll see that relates to um, being anxious in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we have a command, don't be anxious. This obviously acknowledges there's going to be things in life we will be anxious about um, that will woo us towards anxiety. Scripture says don't stay there. It gives us a solution, prayer with thanksgiving. And then the result of that solution is peace with God, the kind of peace that doesn't make sense given what your circumstances are. And that's what I believe is our landing pad. We want to get towards that peace. Scripture tells us this is the desired landing pad when we want to get off of our anxious place. Now, it doesn't say that God's going to give us a yes answer to what we're praying about. Um, he just says he's going to give us peace. And I wish life was always this neat and tidy. Don't be anxious, pray, peace will come. It's true, but I think sometimes there's a lot more work that's involved than just that statement, just don't be anxious, pray, you will have peace. Um, I think it's in that good hard work where God really does the heavy lifting in our souls, um, and it's what resides in that blue bubble. We're going to get to that. Um, I want to share with you an excerpt from Ruth Bell Graham's book. It's Prodigals and Those Who Love Them. It's a, it's a good book. I recommend it. I think they have it in the bookstore. And she's writing about um, an experience many of us have probably had, waking up in the middle of the night. Your loved one is right here in the front lobe of your brain. And um, she writes, suddenly the Lord said to me, Quit studying the problems and start studying the promises. And then she describes meditating on Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And she zeroed in on that phrase with thanksgiving. Suddenly I realized the missing ingredient in my prayers had been with thanksgiving. So I put my Bible down and I spent time worshiping him for who and what he is. I began to thank God for giving me this one I loved so dearly in the first place. I even thanked him for the difficult spots that taught me so much. And then here's what she says that in my brain was the money shot. She says, that was when I learned that worship and worry cannot live in the same heart. They are mutually exclusive. I mean, that was a mind blower for me. As a follower of Christ, I am called to live a life of worship, a life that worships the one true God, a life devoted to worship of Jesus. Um, Paul David Tripp, in his devotional New Morning Mercies, he insightfully and I believe rightly says this about worship. He says, we have been designed by God to be worshipers. 
This means that worship is first our identity before it ever becomes our activity. The worship inclination and motivation that resides in all our hearts was placed there to draw us to God, the one to whom we were made to give our worship. If I'm consumed with worry about my son, I cannot maintain a posture of worship because my posture is worry. In a sense, I'm worshiping my worry. Worship and worry cannot coexist. That's the transformation that God has for us. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, wait a minute. I pray all the time. I am all about 1 Thessalonians 5.17. I'm praying without ceasing. That's worship, right? Yes. However, let's do a deeper dive into those prayers for our loved ones. Um, when we've been awake in the middle of the night, unable to go back to sleep, recounting, think about these endless prayers over and over, beseeching God to rescue your loved one from himself, to woo her back to Jesus. And I'm a visual prayer, so in the middle of the night, I have recalled so many times I have just, I have taken Kevin and I have laid him at the feet of Jesus, just in my prayers. Now, sometimes I gently lay him down. Oh, Jesus, take my son. And other times I am hauling him and dumping him at the feet. Jesus, would you just take him? And all very legitimate prayers. And I have realized that sometimes as I'm praying over him that I'm so fraught with anxiety over him that I curl up next to him at the feet of Jesus. And I say, oh, please bring him back to you. And that can be a sweet place to be for a while, um, to lay down next to our loved ones. Please bring her home, Jesus. Because it's this anxiety that compels us to be at the feet of Jesus. It's a safe place. But then if I consider my desire to receive that peace that's talked about through worship, I think there gets to a point where I need to, if I'm laying at the feet of Jesus looking at Kevin, I need to get up. I need to leave him there. And I need to, in a sense, climb in Jesus' lap. And I put my hands on the side of his face. Say, Jesus, I need to see you. And when I look at you, I see loving kindness, and I see faithfulness, and I see comfort, and I see grace, and I worship you in the truth that you are who you say you are. God wants to transform us from our anxiety to peace through worship. He wants to transform us from, from our fear into trust through worship. At some point, we have to leave our loved one there at the feet of Jesus and worship God for who he is. You know, the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 3, verse 1, to fix our thoughts on Jesus, and in chapter 12, verse 2, to fix our eyes on Jesus. See, if, I, if we continue to be fixed on our loved one, we're missing out on looking at the one who saves us and worshiping him. Now, before this call to fix our eyes on Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, we have to throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles. 
So what is there, it, what's entangling us besides our worry? Well, that gets us to our next place, the angry place. Um, this is another response when our loved one wanders from the Lord. It's that angry, mad place, the frustration and the fury at the choices and decisions your loved one is making. And I've been there. I am absolutely uncomfortable there. Um, mad and angry are my personal least favorite um, emotions to deal with. I, anxiety is my sweet spot. That's where I hang out. But mad and angry, I have absolutely been there. And I've been so angry because my son is mucking up my vision of our perfect Christian family. How dare he? I mean, you look at the picture. We look awesome. <laughs> but he's messing with that, and it, it changes the narrative of our family story. And, it, it, and how do we do Easter and Christmas now, where we're walking on eggshells and not offending people? And fortunately, we're getting past that a little bit. But it's hard, and it, it makes me mad. Now, maybe for some of you, there have been ugly and disrespectful and dishonest behaviors and conversations that have been in your face. And this causes a lot of, of fury and frustration. We can't deny it. Um, I don't think we want to stay there again because it's exhausting, like worry. It can be very consuming. So what is our counter to anger? What is the desired landing pad? Where would we rather be? Well, since I'm uncomfortable with anger, I go, I zero in straight on scripture because it's, that's what I do when I have things I don't like. Um, I go to scripture and see what it says. And Luke 15 is the most familiar story we have of a, of a wandering one. It's the story of the prodigal son. We are, if you're familiar with it, the man has two sons. The younger son, to use Kevin's phrase, he goes on a real hot streak of poor life choices um, and then realizes at some point that he comes to the end of himself and it would be better to be a servant of his dad's than to be hanging out with the pigs. So he decides to return home and beg his father's forgiveness. And what we see in chapter 15 of Luke, verse 20, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And we're given this description of the best robe and the ring and the elaborate party, which is the demonstration of the most lavish kind of love. Now, in hearing that story, it's not hard to unpack that the father's response to his younger son in this story, this is God's response to the lost and the wandering. Well, I would like to land where God resides. I would like his response to be my response. So compassion and lavish love is where we would like to land. In in to get off of our anger. That's where we want to go. Compassion is defined as a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune. I call that kind of the noun form of compassion. And then the definition continues though. It says stating that this feeling is accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. And I think that launches us towards the verb form of compassion. Now, nowhere in the definition does it say compassion is available only if the misfortune is not of the self-inflicted nature. You know, because sometimes we look at our loved ones and say, well, it's your own dumb fault. 
And the idea of compassion can run counter to my desire for justice and rightness. I love my being rightness. Um, so it's like, well, if you hadn't wandered away and done all these dumb things, you wouldn't be experiencing these consequences. Um, and you know, it's all true, it bugs me, and it is my problem. When compassion the noun meets compassion the verb, it is demonstrated in the lavishly loving father of our story. 1 John 3, 1 says, how great is the love the father has lavished on us so that we could be called children of God. Now, when I read these words, Again, I kind of picture John on his island there writing this letter. And do you think he was reminded of Jesus telling this story? I don't know, but I like to think maybe he was. He was telling this story to those sinners, the tax collectors, the lost people. And he was telling it with Pharisees in his audience, those people that were angry at the lost. See, we're in need of transformation to get to this compassion and lavish love. Now, God, the Father, he doesn't need transformation. He is already perfect in his compassion and his lavish love. So how are we going to figure out what goes in our blue bubble? How are we going to figure out how to get to that place of compassion and lavish love? Well, I think the best place to look is the older brother in our story. Remember, we're not talking about the prodigal. We're talking about the people that love the prodigal. So the older brother does not respond in the same way as his father. In fact, verse 28 says, the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. The older brother tees off on his dad, highlighting the unfairness of this whole thing because he towed the line, he lived by the rules, and he never had a party. Okay, so two things I see in this, in this little vignette about the older son. Number one... We don't have an account of the anger being directed at his brother. He's mad at his dad. Has this been true of you? Have you been angry at God? Because you did everything right. You took your kids to Sunday school. You volunteered in their VBS. Maybe you and your siblings went to camp together. You came to Ponderosa Lodge or Mount Hermon. You linked arms. You went forward. And now you have nothing to talk about but sports and weather because they're so far off the reservation. Maybe your parent has done a 180 um, on everything that they taught you. Where's God in all of this? And I will tell you, as by means of encouragement, you're questioning and you're doubting and maybe you're fist shaking. This is all real and God is not surprised. He is not hurt or he is not offended. In fact, he tells you what the father in this story told his very angry son. My son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. What the father wanted to give the wandering son has always been available to his older son as well, his compassion and his lavish love. And it's available to us as well. But to receive it, we have to put the anger aside. And that gets to the second observation. Because of his anger, the older brother refused to go in. So he was missing out on the party. When the prodigal returns, the only thing on the older brother's mind is how unfairly he has been treated. When I've been mad at my wanderer, 
it's really boiled down to how his decision to leave Jesus has affected me. Now, that's the mad place. That's not the sad place. It's very different, okay? When I'm mad, it's he's rejecting my faith. It feels like he's rejecting me. Now, I acknowledge that we can be very mad about this whole mess and nonsense, but I don't want to stay stuck there. I don't want to refuse to go in and miss the party. Now, the story ends with an affirmation of the older brother's place with the father, calling him to join in the joy. It doesn't tell us. Jesus doesn't end the story with, an, with a happy ending. We don't know what the older brother decided to do. But we do know that it is the father's desire that the older brother join in the party, join in the joy. He wants his older son to experience his compassion and lavish love that's available for him too. If we're sitting outside the party, we are not acknowledging the reality of this perpetual opportunity that we have to be with the Father. What, we need, what do we need to do to get to that space? It's this laying down, I believe it's laying down of our idols. That slide came early. Sorry. Okay, we'll go right there. Um, now, some of you have a relationship that you have to have some pretty significant boundaries. Compassion and lavish love looks like faithfully, prayerfully waiting, okay? And that's good, too. Um, but if we're going to get to that party, we need to release whatever we are clinging to, laying aside anything that's in the way of joining the party of God's presence. Sometimes it's our anger at our loved one. Sometimes it's our anger at God, um, I remember a moment when I watched my son and my husband kind of in this tense place. Um, Kevin had another setback in his life, and Brian and I were pooped. We were so tired, and we were so mad. Um, it was like, really, are we still dealing with some of these things? And um, Kevin was on his way home, and I watched when Kevin walked through the door I was like, uh, and I watched my husband, and he just got up out of his chair, and Kevin was at the front door, and there was this long hallway, and I watched my husband just walk down the hallway with his arms out, and he wrapped Kevin in his huge hug, and I watched my husband lay aside the anger that we had been speaking about a half an hour earlier, and wrap his son in compassion and lavish love, and the conversation that followed was tearful. There was a lot of repentance on the part of our son, and there was forgiveness and compassion and lavish love that were offered, and that conversation never would have happened if our response to Kevin had been our anger. And so I watched my husband do that, so I figured, okay, fine, I will too. <laughs> the transformation can only happen when we acknowledge we have to let go of the things that we're hanging on to that prevent us from joining this party. And that is the, the laying down of our idols. I apologize, my, my PowerPoint got a little mixed up. Now, sometimes we can point to things like anger um, and maybe reputation, the perfect Christian family that my picture looks like, and say those can easily become idols, things that we hang on to. It's a bad thing. Let's get rid of those. What about when our idols look like good things, though? Like our marriages or our ministries, or for me, hearing that all of my children are walking in the truth. 
What about when those are our idols? In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says that an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything to seek, you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And I was really struck with this very painful truth in my life with my wanderer because I was sharing with some very trusted friends about the heartache that I was experiencing about Kevin's wandering ways. And as I spoke, I felt my body tensing and I felt the tears start to flow. And I said, I feel like all of my prayers for Kevin are, they're so angsty and they're so pleading and so aching. And then I said, I've lost the joy of my relationship with Jesus. Now my prayers were good, but they had consumed my relationship with Jesus. Basically, to draw from Keller's definition, Kevin's return to Jesus had absorbed my heart and my imagination more than God himself. I mean, it's weird, right? I mean, in this convoluted way, I had made Kevin's return to Jesus, his relationship with Jesus, my idol. I felt like I couldn't be happy in Jesus unless that happened. My desire for Kevin to return to Jesus was overwhelming and smothering my desire for Jesus himself. I needed to lay down Kevin's returning to Jesus. I needed to lay down that idol and join the party. Psalm 31, 3 through 4 says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? What may stand in his holy place? Who may join the party? To use our, our example here, God says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. So whether our idol is something like our anger or another emotion or our idol is actually our wanderer, we've got to let it go. We can't join the party. We can't be transformed into this place of lavish love and compassion if we're hanging on to this idol. So I want to move now to our next place, this place many of you mentioned, this place of sadness or disappointment or sorrow. Um, and sometimes what you're going to find too, it's not like, oh, I'm, I'm only anxious today. Sometimes these are all mushed and meld together, right? And sometimes our anger, and we're trying to get over to compassion and lavish love, but the anger just loses its steam because it's really hard to stay mad for that long. And then we just land in being just so very sad. And I think somebody said a feeling of uselessness or helplessness. I think that that um, is where a lot of our sadness can stem from. We have no power no ability to control these decisions of our loved ones. And the Apostle Paul writes about this feeling of helplessness in Romans 9, and he describes his immense sadness over his fellow Jews who have rejected the Messiah. And I, f I recognize a very familiar cry in Paul's words. Romans 9, verses 2 through 5. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, the people of Israel. 
theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants. And from then is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever be praised. Amen. Have you ever joined me in kind of that place of wanting to bargain with God to change the course of your loved one? I mean, Paul does. He says, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. He's saying, I would give up my own relationship with Jesus if just they would believe. I mean, I remember at one point I was so sad and I was so frustrated. I was having a very loud conversation with God. And I said, God, I mean, if I need to get cancer in order for Kevin to return to Jesus, I am so good with that. Go ahead. Do what you need to do. I mean, Unfortunately, that's not how God works. But I, like Paul, was feeling rather dumbfounded um, because of this whole, he was looking at this legacy the Jews have. They were in the line of the Messiah and they're rejecting him. And, and my son, he has a long legacy of faith. And I, I struggle, like Paul, with a sense of God's sovereignty in all of this. And I just wished I could rest the sovereignty from them because I'm pretty sure if God put me in charge for just a minute, everything would work out really, really well. Um, but thankfully, sovereignty is the job I am, is a burden I'm not meant to bear. And um, Sharon Hod Miller, she writes for this She Reads Truth devotional app, um, and she has some good, really good words to say about this conundrum that Paul is struggling with in Romans 9. She says, the relationship between God's power and our free will is a mysterious one indeed. But when it comes to the decision of a loved one, God's sovereignty removes a great deal of weight from our shoulders. Namely, we cannot force someone to make the right choice. We cannot yell someone into wisdom. We cannot wrestle someone into agreeing with us. And we cannot compel transformation. There is only one who directs the streams of human hearts, and that is God alone. And this is where Paul lands, too, declaring that Jesus, from the line of the patriarchs, is God over all, forever be praised. Amen. You see, Paul, in his writing, he feels helpless, but he is not hopeless. And praise God, the same can be said of us. That's our desired landing pad, hope. Now, initially, when I was thinking about this, I thought maybe a good landing pad from sadness would be joy instead. And I like joy. I think joy is great. Um, but when it comes to my wanderer, I find that my only my hope in Christ that can then lead me to joy. So I aim first for hope. Now, scripture is full of calls to and promises of hope in the midst of sadness and sorrow. I think one of the most poignant is actually the book of Lamentations. This is an entire book, six chapters of laments and expressions of sadness as the writer is reflecting on, he's looking at the circumstances of the devastation of the Babylonian siege on the city of Jerusalem. And so this whole book is lament, except for smack in the middle, there's a few little verses. In the midst of nothing but sorrow over this just judgment of God, we have some hope. Lamentations 3, 19 through 26, it says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, my wanderer. I remember the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet 
This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. This movement from sorrow over to hope we need to think about what's going on in that blue bubble. How do we get from this sad place to actually feeling hopeful? Because like the writer of Lamentations was looking out on this devastating circumstance, and we can look at the circumstances of our loved one, and it's sad-making. We see the emptiness of the worldly pursuits. We witness consequences of disastrous choices, and we're filled with sadness. That's a normal response. I'm not talking, I'm not going to fix normal. I'm not trying to pretend that that normal doesn't exist. What I'm saying is we can be transformed over to hope because that's what Jesus is offering us. I want to make a case that hope can actually become normal. So what happens in that transformation space? What gets us from sadness over to hope? Well, the best way that I have found to approach this is to kind of think about the lens that we're looking through with our wanderer. I actually have a fun little photo of a lens and see how much clearer it is when we are looking at our lens when we see what is off in the distance. So when I'm looking at my loved one, what's the lens that's right in front of my face? Is it the lens of the circumstances that they are either experiencing or just sort of this con consistent drift from the Lord? And that is a sad thing. And if I look through these circumstances, I'm compelled to search for Jesus out here. Okay? We see the reality of our wanderer through these circumstances, and we make our way over. We gratefully land, collapse on Jesus, and say, oh, thank goodness you're in charge of this whole mess. So we've maneuvered our way over to hope in Jesus, and that's good. Sometimes we feel like that's all we've got left. But what if there was actually a different way to do this? What if we started with Jesus front and center? What if this lens is the face of Jesus and allows us to see with such clarity that we are seeing our circumstances through Jesus rather than the other way around? Do we want to see Jesus out here through the lens of our circumstances? Or do we want to see our circumstances through the lens of Jesus? Now maybe, okay, that's kind of splitting hairs. And honestly, when I am in the depths of sadness, I'm not up to a wrestling match with all those circumstances. Just give me Jesus and the hope that he offers. Let me look at his face and let that be the thing through which I see everything else. Because think about this, if I'm looking through my face of Jesus lens and I see him and his character, his salvation, his grace, his mercy, his truth, and then I see the circumstance, those circumstances are bathed in the truth of all that is Jesus. I have switched the lens. That's hope. Because now hope becomes my starting point. It becomes my trajectory and it becomes my landing pad. This face of Jesus changes how I see my circumstances. It doesn't necessarily change what the circumstances are. They will still exist, but it changes how I see them. 
Now, I know it doesn't always work this way with ease. Sometimes those circumstances, they are in the shock and awe kind of category. They are overwhelmingly hard and sad, and my sorrow might be acute, and I will see those things first. Again, I'm not going to deny the normal, but I believe and experience confirms if I continue to work at pushing the lens of Jesus front and center in front of my face, it can become more habit than work. It becomes normal. That's where I want to start, and that's where I want to land. I mean, God has some amazing transforming work for us. Um, and I said this, this seminar, it's not about your loved one, but I do believe it is important for us to consider as we are moving through these places of worship and laying down our idols and switching our lens we're always praying for our loved ones, aren't we? We are always laying them at the foot of Jesus. Um, I do have a point of prayer I think it's important for us to consider. I pray scripture a lot. I use scripture a lot in my, as a prayer prompt. And um, one of the scriptures I've learned to use is from Psalm 16. This whole psalm was written by David, and it's a prayer for the Lord's protection. It's a prayer of David declaring um, trust in God and his confidence in God's care for him. But in the middle of this psalm is tucked a verse of what I call contrast. It's a verse describing those who do not trust in God. Psalm 16.4 says, The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. As long as your loved one is running after other gods, their sorrows will increase. And this is hard to watch. But we have to ask ourselves, can we pray that that is true for our loved ones? Can we pray, God, do what you need to do and allow what you need to allow in order to bring your loved one home? And then say, amen. Or are you like me, who for so long, and I still do sometimes, God, would you bring him back to you? Bring her back to you, but would you please protect him from the dangers of the world that he or she is steeped in? You know, for so long I've qualified my prayers because our brains spin out of control to all the awful possibilities and the potentials. So I say, God, would you protect him or her from the job firing and the loss of friends and protect him or her from the, the arresting officers and the spinal cord injuries and the drug busts and the financial ruin and the bad investments, the bad choices, and the bad people? Or can we simply pray, God, do what you need to do and allow what you need to allow? I will tell you, I have prayed for my son to be miserable. I have prayed that he would not be content or happy or satisfied in his life apart from Christ. And I was sharing this with a father of a wanderer once, and he said, wow, I don't think I can do that. I think that's too hard. And the only thing I could say is I thought so too until I did it. And this became my last white flag of surrender of my loved one to Christ. It really is this trusting that God is a compassionate and lavishly loving Father. Um, I do have some scriptures for you today, too, that 
as you go out and you're praying for your loved ones to pray over opportunities for you to receive this transformation and to move from this place of anxiety to a place of peace and from the place of anger to a place of compassion and lavish love and from a place of sadness into a place of hope. But I do pray that we can release our loved ones and that their sorrows would increase until they return to the lavishly loving arms of their father. So let me pray for us before we go. God, we do want to release our loved ones into your loving care. Would their sorrows increase as long as they are going after other gods? Would they find peace and contentment and joy and healing only as they have abandoned their lives to Jesus. Father, I pray for each one of us in this room that we would know that you do have peace for us. You have compassion and lavish love. And you give us hope. We will always trust in you, the God of hope. So Father, transform us. Bring us to these places that you desire for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you who are interested in a pr some prayer prompts, I have scriptures for you. I kind of have tucked these into my Bible. Um, I enjoy using scripture as a way to pray. So thank you for coming. Thank you for um, walking the wandering road with your loved one. I trust you guys are going to have a great week here at Family Camp.